We are continuing this morning uh, through the book of Acts. Uh, we'll be in the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5 this morning. And what we've, uh, what we've been seeing is that Luke, who is the writer of this, uh, this book of the Bible, um, is writing about what Jesus continues to do and what Jesus continues to teach. Um, this is significant because at the beginning of this book of Acts, uh, Jesus has ascended. He's gone up to heaven, left this earth, and sits at the right hand of God. So how is it that He continues to do and to teach things in the world? Well, it's by means of His Holy Spirit um, that abides in His people and through His people begin to spread this message, the good news of the Gospel, that Jesus alone saves sinners. And part of what we're seeing is that, that using this people uh, to spread this message is a part of the restoring work that Jesus is, is doing to restore His people to their proper functioning and purpose uh, for what they've been redeemed for and what He began as covenant with Israel uh, to, to fulfill and accomplish. And we're seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old uh, Testament promises, all the Old Testament hopes come to their fruition in Him. Um, this morning, as we're uh, continuing through Acts, we're going to see more and more of what it means to be a part of this renewed and restored people of God that He is, uh, he is saving for Himself. Um, uh, and uh, hopefully the, the big point that we get from this section of Acts is seeing that, that the God who is, who is saving us uh, he's, he's making a holy people. And because God is making us into a holy people, we should live holy lives. Um, so, if you would, look with me in Acts chapter 4. Um, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles in your seats there, uh, you'll find this on page 912. We're going to begin on uh, verse 32. Susan, what page is it on the kids' book over there? B, what page is it on? You know? It's okay. Well, you'll find it. Acts uh, 4, beginning in verse 32. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And a great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart 
to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you continue to use it to comfort your people. Uh, to convict us, to shape us, to mold us uh, into the image of Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would apply your word to us this morning. Accomplish your purposes. Uh, Guide me as I teach us and pray that you would be the chief teacher and that Jesus would be glorified. Um, In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage, there's going to be a lot of questions that come up. It's going to be some crazy. This is a crazy section of of Acts, um, so we'll look at it as we dig in. But uh, I think what what will help us understand what's going on is remembering that what we've been seeing is that uh, God is forming a a a people. He's redeeming a people through Jesus through the work of His Spirit. Um, and uh, those who are brought in and a part of this people are those who listen to the message and the good news of the gospel of Christ, who respond to that message in repentance and faith, and who are hoping and trusting in Him. If you reject this message, you are cut off from the people. This doesn't matter if you were a Jew far back as your heritage can remember. If you are not believing and hoping in the promised Messiah, you are cut off from Christ. It also means that if you have no relation to the Old Testament people of God by birth and you look and hope to Christ, you can be brought in and become a part of this people, a full member and a full heir. What does it mean to be a part of this people is uh, as we understand this? Um, Well, notice how Luke refers to this people that are being formed in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. There's a designation that's being made there between the church and everybody else. This, this term church that's used here, we translate it in, in English. It's a, a Greek word 
that in that time could have meant just an assembly or a gathering of, of anybody in particular. But remember, Luke, as he, he's, he starts this book, he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And he's writing that, that Theophilus can be certain and have, have great confidence of what he has heard and knowing that Jesus who is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done. And so Luke is writing to a group of Christians, to believers, who would be familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. And at this time, most of what they were reading and interacting with would have been the, the Old Testament translated into Greek. And so this Greek word used, that Luke uses here, and it's the first time Luke has used it, either in his first account of Jesus' life, the book of Luke, and here in Acts. This is the first time Luke has used this term, church to describe the people of God. And he's drawing old Old Testament imagery for us to understand that this people that God is forming who are hoping and trusting in Jesus are rooted in and their identity should be found and shaped in God's purposes, his one and only purpose from his people extending from all the way back into the Old Testament. This term uh, church that is used or uh, the Greek term is ekklesia um, was in the Old Testament, many times was used to designate specifically this unique people of God that was redeemed and saved by God out of Egypt and called to himself into his presence to be his his people. Uh, in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, here's one instance where it's uh, used or Deuteronomy 31 verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song. Until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel, or we could use the terms from the New Testament translation, all the church of Israel. You see, the church isn't a new creation. There's always been the church, the people of God who has been called and saved to himself. And these people that God is forming in the book of Acts uh, are, are those who are being uh, connected to this called out assembly, this church of the people of God, fulfilling these Old Testament promises. Um, and this terminology should shape and form our understanding of their identity and our identity. In fact, uh, what God intended for the Old Testament church is the same thing that he's, his purposes and intentions for the New Testament church. If you remember the things that God said about this Old Testament church, uh, he said things like this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He uses this terminology in verse 6. For you are to be a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But it's because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt." God has called this people to himself. He's created and formed this church to be holy to him. 
Holy, we talked about this a lot when we were going through the book of Leviticus. Holy means set apart, distinct. You are to be different. You are holy because you are distinct from the rest of the nations. I've called you. I've not called them. I'm using you. You are to live differently in order to demonstrate and show that I am holy, that I am different, that I am set apart. Remember, the scriptures say there is one living and true God. Genesis Chapter one, when it gets over, we talked about this when we went through the book of Genesis, that when the creation week was finished after our God did his work, there was not one single thing left for any other God to do. He did it all. There are no other gods we've seen in in Acts so far. Who else can you go to to be saved? No one. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is Jesus There is one God. He is holy and distinct in his creation and his power and his sovereignty and his perfections and his righteousness and his goodness and his love. This holy God is calling and forming a holy people. And these people that we see in Acts who are believing and hoping and trusting in Jesus are being formed into this holy people, a part of God's church. But what and what kind of ways are we to be holy? How is he making them holy? Well, notice in this passage how we see this pointed out. that the, This people that God is forming, us, if we're hoping in Jesus, are to be holy in our desires. Notice in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Again here. Luke is drawing on Old Testament language to explain to us what's going on here. Remember, we've seen before he's drawing on stuff a lot from Isaiah to give us an understanding of this new people that he's forming. Here he's drawing on uh, language and terminology that's found in several places in the Old Testament, but particularly in uh, Deuteronomy. Listen to this language of, uh, of one heart and soul, this full number of the people who believed. Uh, and now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong the heavens, the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that's in it. Yet Yahweh set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Again, he's touching back on that. You are holy and distinct from the nations. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart and no longer be stubborn. Or in other words, embrace the promises. Believe. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Holiness again. The great and mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, as you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things your eyes have seen. 
Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the heavens. God is calling this this Old Testament church to be one of mind and soul. To one of heart and soul. To believe and hope and trust in Him alone. He is to be their desire. He is to be uh, where they find their security and their significance. They're not to look to any other gods. They're to look and hope and trust in Him and Him alone. And here, we see Him doing that work, fulfilling that purpose through the Spirit working in this people that He's saving through Christ and doing the same thing. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were holy in their desires, set apart, distinct in the way that they looked and hoped in Jesus as the one, the only Redeemer, Savior, and Satisfier of our hopes and our longings. They were of one heart and soul. They were holy in their desires. What about you and me? What about our desires? Are we, are we one? Are we reflecting in our heart and our soul this holiness of desire that God intends and His purpose and the reason for how, why He has saved and redeemed His people? Um, there is a, uh, a man who's recently died. His name is David Pallison. He's a Christian counselor. And he has this article that he put out that's called X-ray questions. And it's asking questions to help you X-ray and find out in your heart where there might be other desires, other longings, other gods or idols that you're worshiping and depending on so that you are not holy in your desires set on God and God alone. Here are a few of them. Maybe you could, you might not be able to write them all down now, but to think about this as we consider, are we as God's people those who have holy, set-apart desires. What do you desire, crave, lust, wish for? What desires do you obey? Where do you bank your hopes? Where do you find refuge and security? If I only had blank, I would feel fulfilled, happy, secure. What are you preoccupied with? What is on your mind when you get up out of bed in the morning? What's on your mind when you go to sleep at night? What do you fear? What desires, when not met, lead to feelings of frustration, anxiety, resentment, anger, or depression in your heart and your mind? Is there something that you desire so much that you are willing to disappoint or hurt others in order to get it? These questions can cut deep, exposing in us where our desires may not be holy. 
they may not be set apart, where we may be giving ourselves and looking towards and finding security and significance in someone or something other than God, other than Jesus. But notice, even in that passage in Deuteronomy that we looked at, these holy desires are not restricted just to internal things. They should overflow. This holiness should demonstrate itself out. In that Deuteronomy passage, it talked about in light of the God who has redeemed you as you love Him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, you should be caring about other people. You should care about the sojourners, those who don't have a lot in your midst, who are struggling materially. You should have a heart and a concern for living in such a way that shows care for them. And we see the same thing in this passage. That it's not just that God is seeking to to make a people that's holy with their desires, but also holy in their actions. Notice in verse 32, how this one, this holiness of desires moves forth into action. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And it goes on in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it to the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, the native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here, this holy desire of looking to Jesus and Jesus alone, of hoping and resting and depending on him, does not just stay inside. It moves out in holiness of action as they engage and seek and care for the poor and the needy in their midst. As They don't see their stuff as being theirs. It is God's. He has entrusted and given it to them. And their response is seeing it as being his is how can I use what I've given to care for and serve those who are around me? We looked at this a couple of uh, chapters ago because this same um, information Luke gave us an account of summarizing the work that the spirit is doing among the, the, the lives of the people. But notice again how this picks up. Luke is intentionally using language here to describe what's going on, again, from Deuteronomy. This language where he he says, there was not a needy person among them. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, Moses uses the same language to describe what God promised that he would do when he brings his called out and holy people and establishes them in the land that he promised them to accomplish his purposes. Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. But there will be no poor among you, God says to his people. For Yahweh will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Um, and he goes on, if only you will strictly obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command to you today for Yahweh, your God will bless you as he has promised. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. God has promised that as he 
puts his people and he establishes them in the land. And as they are faithfully looking and trusting in them, that he is going to provide for them in such a way that they are going to be enabled to care for the poor and the needy around them. And that that would be something that extends to the nations, that the nations would take notice of what's going on. And then they would begin to come to the church of God to seek uh, provision. Here, God is doing that work. Luke is showing us and confirming to us that these holy purposes that God had for his people from the beginning are being fulfilled in this people. That this holiness of action, that they are setting themselves apart and living in a way that points to the God who saved and redeemed them and accomplished what he is intending. Because he is a generous God who saved them out of slavery, who brought them out of poverty, who has given them riches and a relationship with him and enabling and empowering them and calling them to use what they've been given to care for and serve others. This holiness of actions flows out. But even though here we're seeing it in the, with Barnabas and this description here is it's related to generosity and how we respond to our material goods, which actually, if we go back to those questions of those desires, how many times those, would you complete answer some of those things that had to do with finances or money or stuff? That it'd be interesting that God here is he's he's freeing us up to love and worship and serve him. That this one of the chief idols in our American culture is our money and our possessions and having things that God frees us up from that to hold it loosely and to use it to bless and serve and care for others. But it's not just with with money. We see throughout the scriptures and uh, and even in this passage, because the when we get to Ananias here in just a little bit, we'll see. It wasn't about the stuff. It was about his lying. His desires, his words. You see, everything about our life is to be holy as God is holy. We're we're to be reflectors of God. Think about it this way. What? Kids, you can be the uh, you can help me with this. So. We some of you may have seen him. We have a new little Schubert um, Harris. He's about this big, right? What if I put Harris over here uh, back in the kitchen? Um, So unable to be seen by the people over here on this side of the wall back in the back. And I took one of you and I put you back over there in that room where you couldn't see who it was that I'd put over here in the kitchen. And the only way that you can figure out who or what is in the kitchen is by looking at me. Because I can see Harris back there, but you can't. And so you have to look at how I act and how I describe and reflect to you what's going on over there so that you can know who it is. Now, if I did this and this and this. Yes, there you go. Harris, come on. But what if I did this? What if I did this? Would Harris be a strong elephant? So I would be communicating and reflecting to use wrong stuff about him. You would expect that when you finally come around the wall and see 
the thing in that kitchen, you would be expecting a strong giant elephant, but it's not. It's a little burpy, smiley baby. The way that I reflect and communicate stuff about him, I can either show true and good things or I can show wrong and false things. And if our hearts and our actions are not holy and set apart, then what we will be communicating to the watching world who does not know our God is that he is greedy, that he is selfish, that he is heartless, that he's untrue, that he's cruel. See, the reason God is calling and saving a holy people to have holy desires and holy actions is because we've been saved to be His holy people who show and demonstrate to the world that He is the holy God. And the way that they will know who He is is how we live and demonstrate Him. We've already seen that 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 happens through what we say. Luke's been telling us it is our role and our job to share and tell people that Jesus is the one and only God. And if they reject him, they will suffer eternally, separated from God. But also now what we're beginning to see is that the things inside us, our desires, our longings, how they overflow and our actions and the stuff that we do are also very important because God is saving a holy people, holy in desires Holy in action. But how, how does he accomplish this holiness? How does he seek to, to bring about it, to motivate it in the lives of this people that he's saving and he's forming? Well, one way that we see it in this passage is that God is, is making this holy people through judgment. Look in verses 1 through 11. Remember what happened? But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back some he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, "Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose wrapped up his body and carried it out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The young men came in. They found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Whoa. This is crazy. The same Peter who just a little bit ago had great compassion on a guy who had been lame for 40 years. Now, over an accounting error? Boom! Dead. Immediately. 
not just the husband, but the wife, struck down by God. What's going on here? Is it, is it because he, he didn't give everything to God like Barnabas did? I mean, Barnabas gave all of the, the proceeds of the land that he sold. And he wasn't struck down. Was that Ananias and Sapphira's sin? That what they were supposed to do is, uh, is this uh, death penalty instituted uh, socialism kind of thing that you've got to give all your property or God's going to strike you down. I'm guessing that's not the case because uh, did everybody give everything you have in the offering plate? I didn't see anybody die during the offering or earlier in the service. I hope that's not the application of this point, right? No, the, what we're, we're seeing here is that Ananias and Sapphira, what they were doing is they were wanting the recognition like Barnabas. Glory, praise for themselves. He gets the title of son of encouragement. I want people to think like that about me. I really, I want the status the, to, to, to be known and respected by other people. My focus is on my glory or my holiness, my distinctiveness, my being set apart among other people. And Peter says there's something very wrong about this. But we still may think... Death? Really? Right then? Right there? Bam! Gone! Is there a problem with that punishment? A lot of people have trouble with this passage. How, how could Peter, actually we should say, how could God, because Peter doesn't say you're dead, God's the one who, who does it. How could God give this punishment here? A lie? Maybe the problem isn't the punishment. Maybe the problem is our perception of our sin and our perception of God's holiness. This past week, I was doing a little research on the most toxic and deadly substances known to man. This is what I do in my free time. (laughs) One such deadly substance Toxic substance is called batrachotoxin. Batrachotoxin comes from these frogs in South America. Some uh, native Indian tribes in South America take the 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 poison in these frogs and put it on the the tips of their darts and their arrows, and this is how they they hunt. And it kind of can neutralize a large object of prey very quickly. This, uh, this, this poison is so deadly and so toxic that for a human, the amount of two grains of salt will kill you. Can you pick out just two, two grains? No more. You got it? You got it? You got two? Just two. That's not very much, is it? Super, super small. But guess what? If that was from that poison tree frog and you ate that, dead. You're gone. It would kill you. Just that little bit. What would you do if I... Just a little bit. Only a teeny tiny little bit will take you out. 
extremely deadly. Would you ever say, if I dropped a little bit of tobacco toxin or whatever in your drink, oh, it's only a little bit. (laughs) When we're talking about two grains of salt? You see, what the Scriptures are telling us is that actually the most toxic, destructive substance known to man is sin. And if we do not have a proper perspective and understanding of how utterly destructive sin is and how it leads to death and how it will result in our death before a holy and righteous God, we have completely misunderstood it. We understand how toxic sin is, we realize that this punishment was not extreme because God is seeking to protect His people. The other side of it would be is if we, if we underestimate God's holiness. What if, if we had time, we could do this. Um, maybe we'll try it at, at the picnic in two weeks. You can come and we'll see how it works. What if I, uh, we all just got up right now and went right across the street to the boatyard. There's a dock right there. We can see across the river to the other side of the Pasquotank River, the Camden County. It's not that far, really. What if we had a contest to see who could jump the farthest and get the closest to Camden County? How do you think we'd do? You think you could make it? Aaron might be able to just fall off of the dock and get farther than a lot of us could jump. But what is the result? Even the most, the person with the longest leap is comparatively still very far from Camden County. If we can't even reach Camden County with our greatest efforts, do you really think you and I could reach the holiness and righteousness of God? How far distinct, how much more holy and separate from us through His holiness and His righteousness is He than we are? That's an infinite gap, an infinite distance. And even in our best efforts, our most righteous and good deeds... All of us are falling infinitely short from reaching the holiness of our God. Uh, Bodhi, show that first picture. This is kind of a picture of the, uh, the Christian life. We're going to look at it a little bit and uh, a little bit more in just a bit. Notice that, that growth in the Christian life is growing on this top line and your understanding of God's holiness. And on the bottom line, growing in your understanding of man's sinfulness, our sinfulness. Next, the next uh, slide. So when we come to know Jesus, the hope and the promise of the gospel that's being proclaimed is that Jesus is the one and the only one that bridges the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. But notice what happens if we begin to lessen God's holiness and to think it doesn't really matter, or He's not as holy as we really think He is, that we could jump through our righteousness to Him, we're we're lessening the significance, the need of the cross, because the gap gets smaller. The other problem could come in is if we lessen our sinfulness. We don't understand and realize how really toxic it is that even just a grain, one sin... Actually, we confessed a couple of weeks ago, we enter into this world sinners... The only reason we're sinning is because we're corrupt from our hearts. We're still lessening the significance of the cross, lessening the need of the gospel. 
What God is trying to show us in this passage is that what we deserve due to our sin and our rebellion against Him, what our lack of holiness is, is sin necessitates death. That is how holy God is, and that is how sinful we are. Notice how this comes up with Ananias and Sapphira. Notice the descriptors. It's not just an accounting error. It's not just a little lie. Notice in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? As he goes on in verse 4, you've contrived in your heart to lie to God. Ananias isn't lying just to Peter. He's lying to God. Instantly, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, when he talks to Sapphira later, he's going to say that she's lying to uh, or. Uh, well, it's even here too. You've lied to uh, not to man, but to God. And before he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, remember, I told you before, I've been laughed at before by some traveling missionaries who objected and said that the scriptures don't teach the Holy Spirit as God. Here is one passage that we would see that is actually communicated. But um, notice Ananias is one who is filled with Satan in his heart. He's lying to God. Uh, He has not, remember, one of the things that we've seen over and over in Acts is the work that God is doing in His people who are believing and hoping and trusting in Jesus. What or who are they filled with? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, Ananias is not filled with the Holy Spirit. He is filled with Satan. And his response is the lie to God. And notice, Peter asks him multiple times. Peter gives him the opportunity over and over again to repent. Notice how many times he asked Ananias a question. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And to keep some of this for yourself. While it remained unsold, was it yours? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? What's Ananias' answer? Does he say, I'm sorry, Lord. This is my error. I should not have done that. I've been focusing on myself and not on you and your glory. I have sinned against you. Will you have mercy on me? No. He says nothing. And he is struck dead. One of the evidences of the Spirit being in our heart is the response is what? We've seen it over and over the last passage. Repentance and faith. Here, the work of not the Spirit in our lives, but continuing to lie in our sin and Satan being in our hearts, is that we refuse to repent, continue to remain in our rebellion against our God. Notice the same thing comes up again with with Sapphira. She knew what was going on. They decided together to keep some of it back from them for themselves, although they were communicating it uh, more to the rest of the people. And in verse 9, it says that they that together they agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord. This again is language that comes in the Old Testament. To test God um, is to, to doubt Him, to disobey Him, to misrepresent Him, um, to question His promises. Here, Ananias and Sapphira are both exercising deep unbelief and rejection and rebellion against their God. And she too is given an opportunity to repent. Is this really the price you sold it for? And she says, yes. And she's struck down. See, the, God here is exercising judgment to purify from among His people 
those who would be content to outwardly associate themselves with the people of God. Ananias and Sapphira here are associating with the church. They're doing churchy stuff. They're doing the things that church people do. But what this, their actions are demonstrating and what this judgment is showing is that what's deep inside their heart is not consistent with that profession. Ananias and Sapphira are not losing their salvation here. It's being confirmed what was true of them from the beginning, that they were not hoping and trusting in God. And God had a desire to purify His people, to, to um, give a, a huge, big, eye-opening statement so that God's people would take notice as He's purifying His people through judgment by taking the, the, the defilers of His people and of His name out of the context of this community, and He strikes them dead. God is intent and purposed uh, to make a holy people for Himself, and He will accomplish it through judgment. If not in this lifetime, when Jesus returns. Remember, we've seen before that this is there's special things that are happening here in Acts that aren't always repeatable. They don't continue to come up like a grand opening. You don't just keep doing the same thing over and over again. This is a special act of judgment to bring this message to God's people that we would take note and respond appropriately. What is that response? Notice what it says um, in verse 5. The response after Ananias is struck down when, the, when uh, great fear came upon those who heard it. What's the result when Sapphira and Ananias' word gets out that they've died? Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The result of this judgment is to produce fear in the hearts and the minds of God's people. We can understand that in a couple of ways. One way that Scripture talks about fear is one of terror. Of being afraid of judgment and of... uh, of finding yourselves before uh, a holy God. Another aspect that Scripture talks about is fear from the perspective of respect, honor, responding appropriately, awe at this God. It's kind of like the going to the Outer Banks. Going to the beach down there. The Outer Banks is a, a source of great delight. You can have a ton of fun at the Outer Banks, playing in the ocean, Swimming, people are surfing, boogie boarding and stuff all the time. You can go play in the waves, build a sandcastle, let it get knocked down, run out and get you some water and come and fill your moat up that you've made. But this source of great delight, if not treated with fear, with respect, responding appropriately to the power that it has, can be deadly. Count after account comes up of people who die and are swept out the sea because of the rip currents of the Outer Banks, how strong the waves are. A place and a source of great delight can also be a source of great fear and terror and can lead to death if you do not respond to it and respect it appropriately. That is what we are seeing here. The God that we serve is a source of great delight to those who come to Him in the way that He has provided and the way that He has communicated. But if you do not respond appropriately and have the appropriate fear to Him, the results can be deadly. Notice, it's not just judgment, though, of how God motivates and empowers His people, but it's also through the Gospel. Notice back up in verse 33 and 34. We'll close up with this. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And it goes on to explain how this great grace was demonstrated and evidenced. There was not a needy person among them. You see, it's through the proclamation of the good news that it's only Jesus who saves sinners and the grace that comes upon these people who accept and believe this gospel of grace through Christ that they then respond in living holy lives. In response to experiencing and delighting in the grace of Jesus, they live out holy, distinct, transformed lives. It's not just judgment that produces that. It's the grace and the good news of the gospel. You see, as we too continue to reflect and delight in and understand more deeply how Jesus has died and risen for us, that is what motivates and also empowers the people of God to live out these holy lives. Notice back this, uh, this diagram again. Bodhi, you got the last one? Notice, this dotted area in the middle is us growing and progressing in the, the Christian life. As we grow, what should be happening as we grow as Christians is we should be growing in our understanding of God's holiness. He gets, from our perspective, holier and holier and holier and holier. And also, we should grow in our understanding of our sinfulness. We begin to realize more and more, whoa, how far short do I fall? But notice also the result and what happens. The cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Jesus bridges the gap and brings sinners into a relationship with the Holy God. The holier God gets, the more sinful you understand yourself to be, the larger and more magnificent and beautiful the cross gets. The gospel looms large. A God who would do this for you, would we not want to live in such a way that reflects exactly who's in the kitchen? A gracious and merciful God who suffered and died to bring the most ruthless sinner into an adopted relationship of love with Him. This is the good news of the Gospel. Not just that Jesus has saved you, but that He's called you into a relationship to be a reflector, to be a holy people. He's accomplishing this holiness and this, this calling in His people's lives, both through judgment that we need to be aware of, but also through the proclamation and application of the good news of the gospel in the hearts and the minds of His people. We should delight in this and be moved and empowered through the Spirit to live these holy lives before a watching world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of the gospel. We thank You that it's not through what we do, but through what Jesus has done for us. We pray that You would continue to make us more into Your holy people, that we would rest in who Christ is for us. Strengthen us from Your Scriptures and also now use the Lord's Supper uh, to continue to apply the benefits of the Gospel to Your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Jesus was on His way,